Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week for the fourth Sunday in Advent is How Silently, How Silently the Wondrous Gift is Given. Christmas 2008. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 28, 2008. The British poet U.A. Fanthorpe was the first woman nominated as Professor of Poetry at Oxford University. I love how her poem entitled B.C.A.D. captures the unremarkable circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. Listen to her poem. This was the moment when before turned into after in the future's uninvented timekeeper's presented arms. This was the moment when nothing happened. Only dull peace sprawled boringly over the earth. This was the moment when even energetic Romans could find nothing better to do than counting heads in remote provinces. And this was the moment when a few farm workers and three members of an obscure Persian sect walked haphazard by starlight straight into the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Christians celebrate that ordinary night as the most extraordinary event in human history. For on that night, God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Nothing unusual was happening that night to break the tedium of human boredom. In the backwater municipality of Bethlehem, 1,400 miles from the capital of Rome, government bureaucrats conducted a census in order to increase the tax revenues of Caesar Augustus, literally Caesar the Exalted. A few obscure shepherds stomped their feet to keep warm and gossiped to stay awake through the night shift. A mother birthed a baby. And on that ordinary night, Fanthorpe observes, a staggering paradox occurred. Among the everyday affairs of ordinary people, God became a man. Eternity invaded time. The sacred embraced the profane, before yielded to after. God had spoken to humanity in many diverse ways, times, and places. But in Jesus, he spoke a definitive word to us, Hebrews chapter 1, 1-4. In his human incarnation, Jesus embodied a divine affirmation. It's the affirmation that God embraces all the world and everyone in it, and that he meets me in extraordinary and exceptional ways in all the unexceptionable times and places of my ordinary life. Luke locates the birth of Jesus in the context of normal human history. When Caesar Augustus ruled as emperor of Rome from 27 B.C., to 14 AD. Even more mundane, and here I like to believe that Luke intended some sharp political parody, 
he suggests that a pagan government's bureaucratic decree initiated the sequence of events that redeemed humanity and the whole cosmos. God used this so-called exalted earthly emperor's tax census as the occasion for the birth of the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But King Jesus entered the world in an unceremonious way, as a helpless baby born in a barn. In stark contrast to the pomp that characterized the Roman emperors back then, or most heads of state even today. <clears throat> when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, enacted the decree of Augustus, Joseph and Mary complied. Even though Mary was far along in her pregnancy, they trekked 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to register with the government. Soon after they arrived, Luke writes in chapter 2, verse 6, the time came for the most magical of all moments, the birth of a baby. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul described this birth as the fullness of time. When God sent forth his woman, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, to redeem humanity. Although it's hard not to think of angelic kids in oversized bathrobes and shepherds with towel turbans, what happened next was a combination of the commonplace and the cruel. As was customary, Joseph and Mary wrapped the newborn Jesus in strips of cloth. But was it not pitiless that the boarders in the guest rooms could not accommodate a pregnant teenager experiencing birth contractions? It's even more cruel if, as would have been normal, Joseph had sought housing among his extended family. Dealt these harsh realities, Mary and Joseph placed him in a manger, which is to say they placed him in a feeding trough used for animal fodder. A few months later, the young family escaped to pagan Egypt as displaced exiles when the government announced its plan of infanticide. Luke implies that the Jesus whom Christians worship as the Savior of humanity entered our world as an outsider who was rejected by the powerful insiders. Jesus' first well-wishers were not the well-off, the connected, the powerful, or the wealthy, and certainly not state royalty. Instead, common laborers to whom God had spoken in the middle of the night worshipped Jesus. Given the rough-and-tumble context of his birth, these coarse shepherds were likely the only sorts of people who would have felt comfortable at Jesus' manger. Whatever the shepherds saw or heard that night, Luke says they were terrified. But their terror turned to joy, and their joy turned to witness. We read in Luke 2.17, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. From that day forward, the rumor mill hit overdrive and didn't stop for 33 years. People were amazed, writes Luke. Just who was this child? What did all the strange events portend? 
Like every mother who has ever given birth, Mary, quote, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart, end quote, wondering what would become of her newborn son. <clears throat> the Christian liturgical calendar observes special times of the year as extraordinary feasts. These are times that punctuate exceptional moments in the rhythm of the year. The rest of the year is relegated to so-called ordinary time. But the affirmation of the Incarnation is that there is no such thing as ordinary time, ordinary place, or ordinary people. Nor is there any ordinary school, soccer team, or job. There's no ordinary marriage or friendship. The implications are endless. If the Son of God gasped his first baby breaths while screaming in a feeding trough, if tax decrees by pagan emperors, and if ruddy shepherds working the night shift all played their role in the redemption of the cosmos, then no one and no thing is ordinary. The Incarnation affirms that the most ordinary dimension of life can be the place of God's extraordinary saving activity. Recognizing this, suggests Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury and leader of the world's 100 million Anglicans, is the secret to living the entire liturgical year with a sense of God's presence. Rowan Williams writes that in our most mundane circumstances, here we are daily, not necessarily attractive and saintly people, along with each other not very attractive and saintly people, managing the plain prose of our everyday service, deciding daily to recognize the prose of ourselves and each other as material for something unimaginably greater, the kingdom of God, the glory of the saints, reconciliation and wonder. After all the office parties, after eating way too much food, after the kids return to college from their semester break, and after special worship services at church, all the special treasures of Christmas that we rightly enjoy without apology, after all of this we return on December 26th to so-called ordinary time. But even the monotony of the dullest winter day can be a place where God intervenes in exceptional ways. If we look and listen carefully, we realize that like the shepherds, we too can walk haphazard by starlight straight into the kingdom of heaven. To journey with Jesus readers in 230 countries and territories around the world, Emmanuel God is with us. For books this week, I review Thomas Friedman, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, Why We Need a Green Revolution and How It Can Renew America. New York, Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, 2008, 438 pages. <coughs> When my family was in Germany in 1990, our friends pulled up to a stoplight and obeyed a traffic signal that instructed them to turn off the engine 
save fuel and spare the air. That was almost 20 years ago. Brazil and Denmark have already attained energy independence from Middle East oil. Japan and Europe have fuel economy standards of 35 miles per gallon. The United States won't match that until 2020. In 2004, demand for scrap metal in China was so strong that manhole covers started disappearing from around the world. Thieves stole them, chopped them up, and sold them to China. 150 covers went missing in Chicago. Every single mile you drive your car, you emit one pound of CO2 into the air. And keep in mind that China is adding 14,000 cars every day to its roads. Welcome to what Thomas Friedman calls Code Green. Thomas Friedman has his critics. His breezy style, jingoistic cheerleading, and free market optimism about profit motives can be irritating. Other readers haven't forgiven him for supporting the Iraq War or for his rosy prognosis about globalization. He has a whole chapter in his newest book about why, about why going green will never be easy, but he specifically denies that Americans need to cut their consumption habits because he believes that capitalism can grow a bigger and cleaner pie for all. Everyone knows that America is by far the biggest eco-laggard, but Friedman still insists that we can be the world's leader. And in a critical review of Friedman's book in the New York Review of Books, Bill McKibben describes Friedman's vision as a so-called green fantasia. And finally, in the New Yorker, November 10, 2008, Ian Parker contrasts Thomas Friedman's carefully crafted persona as your average neighbor with his own eco-footprint, namely Friedman's 11,400-square-foot mansion he and his wife built a few years ago. Still, despite these legitimate criticisms, if America has any hope for mobilizing the general public in an environmental movement that would match the urgency of the civil rights movement, Thomas Friedman is probably as good as it gets. He's won three Pulitzer Prizes, and his books have been translated into 34 languages. He's done his homework, and he's traversed the globe. For many readers, whatever Friedman writes deserves careful attention, and with the current crisis, that's a good thing. The flattening of the world that Friedman described in The World is Flat, which, by the way, has sold four million copies, global warming, and the population explosion all converge, says Friedman, to create five key problems. Energy and natural resource supply and demand. Number two, petro-dictatorships. Number three, climate change. Number four, energy poverty. And number five, biodiversity loss. 
This newest book describes these problems with a blizzard of anecdotes, facts, and figures, and then proposes how we can address them. Friedman sees both a global obligation, but also a national opportunity for America to renew itself. There are many moving parts that must act in concert toward the same goal. Governments, international treaties, free market and profit-motivated innovators, laws and legislatures on the international, national, and local levels, industry regulators, NGOs, personal virtue, civic activism, and bold leadership. Friedman describes himself as a quote-unquote sober optimist, but he admits that there's a very thin line between dire pessimism that we've reached an irreversible tipping point due to apathy and inaction, and optimism that human ingenuity can rise to the occasion. Thomas Friedman, hot, flat, and crowded. For film this week, I review Das Fräulein from the year 2007, a movie from Switzerland. The Swiss director Andrea Stacca, born in 1973, explores the power of place through the lives of three women living in Zurich in her film that has won several awards. The three women would seem to have very little in common except their motherland, the former Yugoslavia. Ruza is a Serbian who left Belgrade 25 years ago by choice. She had it good back home, but she wanted better. And in fact, she succeeded by opening a small cafeteria in Zurich. But inwardly, she is more dour than the Swiss weather. Her employee, Milja, is a Croatian who wants to return to the motherland when she retires, but is deeply ambivalent because her children have settled in Switzerland. Into their boring cafeteria lives enters Anna, a 22-year-old Bosnian from war-torn Sarajevo, who epitomizes joy de vivre, despite her own secrets that would make you guess otherwise. How these three women relate to each other, and the choices they make about what used to be Yugoslavia, drive the plot of this film. Das Fräulein is in German, Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian, with English subtitles. <clears throat> and finally, for Christmas week, we've posted a poem called The Stable by M. Chrysostom, Order of St. Benedict. It's taken from Cyril Roberts' book, Mary Immaculate, God's Mother and Mine, New York Marist Press, 1946. Again, the title of the poem is The Stable. The winds were scornful, passing by, and gathering angels wondered why. A burdened mother did not mind that only animals were kind. For who in all the world could guess that God would search out loneliness? 
the stable by M. Chrysostom. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Christmas week, Sunday, December 28, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.